Hello and welcome to the Future Alternative podcast, where we speak to the best and brightest in Australia's plant-based and alternative protein sector. My name is Danielle Bowling and I'm the editor of Future Alternative. If I was to ask you to name the one company that has truly revolutionised plant-based meat production, chances are Impossible Foods would be on the tip of your tongue. Back in 2011, when the Silicon Valley company was founded, Impossible started with a simple question. What makes meat taste like meat? The team worked tirelessly to get the answer. And that answer, they discovered, is heme, an iron-containing molecule abundant in animal tissue. It's what makes traditional meat so tasty and so craveable. And in a true scientific feat, Impossible has been able to create its own plant-based version. While getting it right was most certainly a journey, it was one that's paid off. With the technology behind Impossible's blushing, almost bleeding plant-based meat setting the company apart on the world stage and helping it to raise close to $2 billion since 2011. Witnessing it all has been Nick Haller, Impossible's first hire and today the Senior Vice President of International. I was thrilled to talk to Nick recently about Impossible's journey so far, including its highly anticipated launch here in Australia. Nick, thanks so much for speaking to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Danielle. Looking forward to talking with you. So you were Impossible's first hire and you've been instrumental in the company's growth since launch. What have been some of the most significant developments that you've witnessed at Impossible throughout your time there? Well, it's a big question. Uh, it's been 11 years since we started the company. And you know, just for a quick background, Impossible was started to create products that outperform what animals do. Um, our founder, Dr. Patrick Brown, took a sabbatical in 2009 from his research at the Stanford Medical School to look at how he could have the biggest impact on the world as a biochemist. He realized the biggest environmental degradation driver is animal agriculture. It's great at producing products that people love to eat, and that's why it's scaled so well. In my background, I come from dairy and beef farming, so I'm definitely very familiar with that world from a, you know, a very young age. The challenge is it's very inefficient. As we've scaled up to feed 7.5 billion people and growing, and more people are growing to the middle classes that eat, eat more meat, as meat is really delicious and really desirable, it just doesn't scale that way. And so for us, we said the only way we're going to change a system like that is to produce products that are better than anything an animal can do. So more delicious, more nutritious, much more sustainable and more affordable as we scale. And so we always had that as a linchpin in the company. And then, you know, over the last 11 years, the, the progress and the milestones, uh, you know, I can list a kind of a few fun ones. You know, the first one from a research side, we spent the first five years understanding what actually makes meat taste so good. Why does it transform as you cook? And we learned that it's a really complex process. There's thousands of molecules that are created that we smell and we taste when you, you know, put a burger or a piece of chicken or a steak on the grill. But it turns out there's one molecule, a molecule called heme, that drives all that flavor chemistry as you cook. And no one had really discovered this. And the you know, darker red the meat, typically the more heme there is there. And heme just drives all that flavor chemistry as you cook. And so that enabled us now to really replicate that experience that chefs and consumers have with meat in a simple way. And so we have heme and then you mix it with you know, vitamins, minerals, amino acids to drive the exact same flavor chemistry and that's dynamicism that you have in meat. And so we learned that a couple of years into the company and became one of the linchpins of the technology. And we do the same in texture and textural transformation, form factors, everything else. You know, that's one. And then, you know, this all kind of builds up and you spend five years doing research. They're like, okay, so what are we going to do with this? And so in 2016, we launched 
And we launched with David Chang in New York City, like the meat chef of New York City. Tracy Desjardins in San Francisco, Michael Simon in Chicago. And like the people around the U.S. are really known for meat culture and the best quality meat, tried and possible. And we're so impressed and so blown away by the experience. Like, we, you know, we have to have this. Our meat-loving consumers are going to like this. And that was like a, you know, a big turning point in the company because it showed that the, the research that we're doing was paying off. The different way to think about how to design food and create food much better than the animal could do was starting to work. And so we scaled from there to a handful of restaurants and built our first facilities. And since then, we've scaled now to more than 25,000 grocery stores, more than 40,000 restaurants, and we're just getting started. And most recently, we launched in Australia and New Zealand, which is super exciting. They've been markets on our radar for a long time. We typically love to go to the places where you know, meat consumption is high. And our intention is to transform the entire ecosystem from farmer to consumer to a plant-based ecosystem. That's much more sustainable, much more efficient and much more value created. Was there a specific turning point, I guess, uh, in, in your time at Impossible when you realized, hold on a minute, I'm part of a really significant game-changing business here. This is going to change the world. Was, there a, was it the heme development that was sort of that aha moment for you? That's such a hard question to answer. The development path is so like not uh, like binary where you have this like big step up. It's like a little step up, a little step down, and bigger step up, a little step down. You're kind of constantly iterating through and the design of the company, the way we think about it is really in the scientific method where we're always trying stuff. And the, the goal is to get better every day. And so, you know, Heme was one of those discoveries that didn't happen like overnight where there's just like, wow, Heme works. It's like, oh, this is working. Let's test it again. Oh, this is really working. Let's test it again. Oh, I see how this is working. Okay, let's keep going there. Versus like a time and period where you have that aha moment necessarily. But definitely it was one where we started seeing those results and it's like, okay, this is something unique. And then I think when you start getting to the market and seeing consumers' reactions, that I think is the biggest one. Because once people try the product and the number of people that have come to me and said, I never thought I could be vegetarian until I tried Impossible. And like, I've had so many people who do dem- demonstrations early on and go to events. They're like, oh, what is this? Oh, it's a, it's Impossible Burger. It's made from plants. Like, oh, why would I eat that? I'm going to go eat my you know, meat from a cow. I was like, no, no, just try it. Just try it. See what you think. They try it, take a bite, kind of look at you inquisitively. like, this is delicious. Huh. And you have no cholesterol? No hormones, all this other stuff. And they're like, huh, I could do this. And so that light bulb goes off. And I think that is like one of the biggest things for us. And it's like, we always said tasting is believing. Once you try impossible products, then the mind opens up to possibilities. Now, as I said, you were Impossible's first hire. So you've been there from day one. How do you think the, the startup culture has changed from when Impossible was first getting off the ground to now? Obviously, there are far more businesses in this sector today than there would have been back then. How do you think the, that startup culture has evolved? I think when we started, so I, like my background too, was, it was agriculture. I worked in food development for several years, and then I went out to California to get into renewable energy. And it was where technology and science could really have a global sustainable impact. I had been in food my entire life, and I had heard nothing about the environmental impact of it this way, and definitely not at a macro scale, and, and the thought that we could do it differently. And so when we started, and I talked to Pat about this idea, and he started talking about the impact of animal agriculture, how we could, if you look at this, all the nutrients we need to produce the products that people love are in plants. And so from a technical standpoint, it's like, I know it's possible. I don't know how we're going to do it, but I know it's possible. But the startups in this, there was really no one was talking about it. 
So I tell friends like very high level what we were doing. We were stealth for a long time as we we're starting to kind of work on these ideas. Like you're doing what? You went from like solar energy to this, to food, back to food. Why? You want to have like sustainability impact? Now that's completely different. And we've seen this in consumers and startups and you're seeing a new company pop up in this space all the time. Consumer brands, new technologies, supply chain across the board. And I think the industry is still extremely, extremely young. We're just getting started what we can do, but the energy in it is so high. And the passion that people have and the positive impact that we can have in the world that this is so high that it's, it's a really dynamic community. The community, like, I think, cheers each other on. And I think the industry itself is really just still getting started. Now, as you mentioned, Impossible has now launched here in Australia, both in food service and in retail. I know it's still early days, but can you talk a little bit about how the brand is performing here and, and also what you guys consider to be unique about the Australian market? Yeah, it is quite early. So we launched in November in food service with butter and grilled and burger burger in New Zealand and you know several others. Then recently we just launched a couple weeks ago with Woolworths and Countdown. And so I think it's too early to say exactly how it's going besides it's, it's going well. It's really going to plan so far. Every time we've been launching markets, we, st- we tend to move faster. We have the, we're getting the playbook down for how to build and bring the consumer with us because it is a consumer journey that we need to drive in every market that we go. It's not just, here's a product, go eat it. It's like, here's a product, here's what it is, taste it. Oh, you have that aha moment, then you kind of keep going. And we're seeing sales continue to increase, which we typically see as people try the products, you get more and more interested and they tell more friends and you kind of have that word of mouth that drives it. And so I think our retail launch, which is obviously a couple of weeks in, is still too early to kind of say too much, but we're seeing you know uptake every week being higher, which is what we'd expect. I think the Australian market is it's very open. It's very innovative. You, t- you hear about this you know, with people too, is like where a lot of companies do their testing there. It's like, let's test new concepts there. I think people are open to new ideas. They're open to trying stuff. And at the end of the day, consumer will come back if it's a good experience. If it's a good experience that you enjoy... It has nutritional benefits, the sustainability, things like that are why people come back. But the good experience is the biggest thing. And we're hearing that a lot. And we hear that in a lot of the like, conversations on the sales side too, where it's like, oh, you know, you talked about the startup community. There's all kinds of companies out there doing plant-based meat now. And so when you're new in a market, the question is like, okay, so how are you different? And we can talk about the evolution of the company. We can talk about the products and then they taste the products. And once they taste the products, like, oh, I get it now. It's like, yeah, yeah, I want to be part of this. And it's really fun to hear that on the sales side and then definitely on the consumer side. And did the product have to change at all before coming to Australia? Did you tailor it in any way? So as we're continuing to evolve the platform, the products were more like tinkering and making them better and better all the time. And some of that is making them globally accessible. So every country has their own laws, regulations and things like this. And so we, as we were thinking about the Australian market, it became really important for us early that, uh, okay, let's make sure we design globally for our products. So we have been making a pretty big product update throughout. And so we put a lot of those innovations in and made sure it was ready for the Australian market. But it's the same that we use globally. And so the base, the base product, and the way we can think about it is ground beef is ground beef, mostly. It's like you might have some different types of cows and some different like grinds and stuff like that. But in general, ground beef isn't that dissimilar when you go a different place around the world. Now, the applications for how you use ground beef and how you use impossible beef made from plants is very different. So in the U.S. is really, really burger heavy. And Australia definitely has a, a strong burger culture too. But then you have all kinds of other products like meat pies, you have Wellingtons, you have all these other things that aren't quite as common necessarily in the U.S. And we're, we're really selling the ingredient that 
restaurants and chefs and consumers can take home and make whatever they want out of it. And so by making a product that's really, really versatile, that enables us to kind of you know, tailor to the local consumer uh, needs. And we saw this, uh, our first international market we launched outside the U.S. was in Hong Kong, which is a great place for bringing like all kind of global cuisines and global communities together. It also was a really big challenge for the product because then you needed to cook it so many different ways. And we learned our first version of the product that we launched wasn't versatile enough. It wasn't robust enough. And so then it kind of burned in different applications and it cooked quite right in this way. And so when we did our, went for like the mate, the big upgrade in 2019, we made sure we designed for robustness. And so that could really work in any cooking apparatus, any cuisine, you know, like really anywhere in the world. And that enabled, open up so many opportunities for us to continue to build out the platform and reach consumers. Now, I think, you know, it's safe to assume that in a lot of instances, consumers of plant-based products are thinking about the environment before making their purchasing decisions. Do you think that Australian consumers are considering the fact that Impossible is an imported product when they see it on supermarket shelves here? Do you think it's an obstacle? I think the, the point on like sustainability and that driver as a driver for consumer decisions, it's really fascinating over the last three, four years to see how that's changed. I think if you went back four or five years ago, and we did this when we launched in the U.S., where we did a you know, brand survey looking at what are the biggest purchase drivers of plant-based meat, and number one is taste. No matter what, no matter where you go in the world, the number one purchase driver of meat and plant-based meat is taste. Two is typically nutrition. And then if you went all the way down, like number 15 was sustainability in like 2015, 2016. You know, three, four years later, it's come up to essentially number three in the U.S., so sustainability went from an afterthought to a main purchase driver for plant-based meat within about four years in the U.S. And we're seeing this globally in a lot of the markets. We're obviously very new in Australia, New Zealand, so I don't have that data um, yet for Australia, um, but we will soon. And I think, you know, for the importing side is our intention is to really build local ecosystems from farmer to consumer locally everywhere we go. And obviously, they're Australian and New Zealand are big production centers. For meat, and so I think there's a huge opportunity for us to help evolve the agricultural system to more and more plant-based meat that then essentially enables a lot of new opportunities for farmers and communities. In the short term, as you import, when you're smaller and you're starting, importing is more economical, more sustainable, and much faster than producing local because it's more sustainable if you have a larger, at least some sort of scale in your manufacturing. If you have a lot of small ones, that's not a sustainable way to produce so we, we are looking at this globally and looking at, okay, when is the right time to put production locally? And I think we'll see a lot of like the more value-add manufacturing where you're making it to local cuisine you know, pretty early. And then the full ecosystem, full value chain will happen over time. And that's going to be a really important story for all the markets. As you no doubt will be aware, the two grilled stores that converted to plant-based, impossibly grilled stores reverted back to their traditional offering after less than a month. What do you think that says about the plant-based market here and, and what lessons can be learned from that? You know, I, I don't know if I have anything specifically on like lessons from that. I think, I think it, it's a great to see customers like grilled try stuff. I think we're all learning what is the best way to sell sustainable products. And I think I'm sure there was tons of learnings on there outside from operations and how this worked. And, you know, as they kind of look at different ways to continue to drive sustainability in their, their mission and their business, I'm sure there's a lot of lessons from that. We have seen globally the number of really plant-based and fully plant-based restaurants is increasing very quickly. And that's driven by the consumer demands and the consumer is looking for it. I do think there's certainly, when you 
change something that's already a set thing into something that's different, there's always going to be some resistance in any industry. It's like if I change from my phone to a different type of phone, there's a very different experience and I'm, I might just kind of go back to the other one because it's, it's what I'm used to. And so I think when you make that abrupt change or where, whether it's like even you hear in cafeterias and things like this, where you might go to like a, a meatless day of the week, there's typically a lot of resistance to that because it feels like you're taking something away. Where I think the way we think about this is we want to give consumers opportunities for something better. And so then as you make the products and the experience better and better and better, that it outperforms what they get today, it makes it, be, it, makes it a really easy, easy consumer choice. And so for us, as we think about the right way to, and the best way to you know, drive sustainability is continue to make the offering better and better and better, where it's a really easy consumer choice for meat lovers to choose impossible over meat from an animal. And then every time someone does, it's a positive impact on the world. So just to wrap things up, what are you, what's impossible focusing on now? What can we expect to see from them before the end of the year? Well, there's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so I think uh, in the Australian New Zealand markets, we're just getting started. So we launched in food service. We have our, our beef products that we brought in and retail. Now we have our brick and our patties. Over the last, I'd say, 18 months, we've really accelerated our product rollouts globally. We now have a pork platform. We have a chicken platform. We actually just launched different sausages. And so you're seeing all these different products kind of coming out from the platform that all compete head on head with animals. And many of our products in the last year that we've launched in blind taste tests are preferred over the animal counter- counterpart by meat eaters. And so I think what we'll see in the market is like Australia, New Zealand is just getting started. It's our first set of products. It's like the beef, which is, you know, the most important one for us to tack- um, tackle from sustainability. Um, but we will over the next, you know, coming years roll out a lot more products into the market. And then as you were talking about too, I think it'll be fun um, and it'll be great for the business as we continue to um, build the, the infrastructure as well for the whole uh, value chain and ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be wonderful to see Impossible Manufacturing here and increasing its footprint. Fantastic. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. That's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep your ears out for our next episode. And as always, head to our website, futurealternative.com.au for all the latest industry headlines and to subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter.